come this Lord's Day to continue for the 36th time our study in the God of all comforts. God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, appointing Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 10 informs us that the reason Christ sat down is because by His one sacrifice for our sin, He has forever perfected His people from their sin. Perfection means our sins have been taken away by Christ's blood, forgiven and cleansed, and we have been declared righteous for Jesus' sake. By the blood of Jesus, we who trust in Him have been perfected forever. Now in Hebrews 10.18, the writer completes his argument, ties it all up with a neat bow. He calls as his final witness the testimony of the Holy Ghost in the Old Testament. The Holy Ghost is witness to the fact that Christ perfects all His people by one offering on the cross. That text is found in Jeremiah 31, where the Spirit disclosed the new covenant for God's people. God's people had broken the old covenant of salvation by law-keeping. Therefore, the Holy Ghost promised that one day God would perfect His people Himself. God would do so by bringing in His new and better covenant by which He promised to forgive His people's sins and to remember them against us no more. Of course, our Lord Jesus made the same connection as Hebrews later would, that by His blood He executes and enacts the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. The writer of Hebrews is careful to tie up the argument he advanced early in chapter 10. The continuance of animal sacrifices meant our sins are still remembered by God against us. Indeed, the Old Covenant promised a remembrance of sin when it instituted the animal sacrifices that had to be offered repeatedly. But now Christ's sacrifice takes away all God's remembrance of the sin of His people, just as the Holy Ghost and Christ had promised. Therefore, the promise of the New Covenant that God would not remember our sins against us anymore is fulfilled by Christ's sacrifice. What the old covenant could never do, God promised to accomplish by His new covenant in Christ. Finally, in Hebrews 10.18, the writer ties up the last strand of his glorious proof. We know animal sacrifices never took away sin because if they had, the offerings would have ceased being made. But where sins are truly forgiven by the sacrifice of Christ, There can be no more offering for sin. This is why Christ was so kind to poor sinners during His ministry and why He so urgently preached the gospel to those sinners. God was remembering the sins of those poor tax collectors and sinners that Jesus ate with. Christ knew their only hope was His mighty power to cleanse their sins by His sacrifice. But the self-righteous Pharisees condemned Jesus for meeting with sinners. They never considered that God was remembering their sins against them also, even though they were punctilious to offer the animal sacrifices, which could never take away their sins. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for their lack of mercy for overt sinners like the tax collectors, even as He proved they themselves were also sinners, if for no other reason than their lack of mercy. God would have mercy rather than sacrifice. 
the mercy of Christ's sacrifice would one day very soon overthrow the animal sacrifices. Jesus' conduct actually modeled the truth found in Hebrews that only His offering can truly forgive sins forever. All the Pharisees could offer were worthless animal sacrifices to those poor sinners and demands that they work harder to obey the law and then the inevitable sneer that, of course, sinners like them couldn't keep the law. All the while, they themselves were breaking the law by their lack of mercy toward the people they looked down upon. Christ offers not just obvious sinners, but self-righteous ones as well. His gospel call, repent and trust in Him. Christ preached, Come to me, all ye sinners, trust in me, and I will give you my rest and forgiveness forever. And at the Lord's table we celebrate the awful price Christ paid to save us from our sins. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood of the new covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, there is a consequence to this final sacrifice by the Lord Jesus and to His exaltation as our great high priest. And it follows right on after verse 18. Look at verses 19 through 21. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say His flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God. We spoke on this text at greater length previously in this series. The argument here being made is that being made perfect by Christ's sacrifice and His having presented His blood to God once for all in the heavenly tabernacle and now having our high priest over all God's people in the heavenly places we ought to be bold to enter into God's holy presence by the blood of Jesus. That's what he's testifying to. Now you remember that one of his proofs that the old covenant was no good, needed to be replaced, was that nobody could go into the holiest place in the tabernacle except the priest once a year in a cloud of smoke and with a bloody sacrifice. And that's because their sins were not taken away. But now that we have Jesus, our better high priest, with His superior sacrifice of Himself, and now that our sins have been taken away, therefore the way is open into the presence of God, into the holiest place. And so therefore we ought to enter into it with joy, shouldn't we? We're bold to enter into God's holy presence by the blood of Jesus and in the presence of Jesus. So look at what it says at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. So here is the exhortation to continue on in faith with Christ. And it is poignant because, of course, one of the points of the whole book of Hebrews is to lay out the case why the Jewish believers ought not to turn back from Christ and return back to their temples and their synagogues and their animal offerings and their cultural and religious history and what they were comfortable with 
and repair the broken damage with their families and with their kid. That they ought not to do that, but rather that they should place their trust and hope in the high priest, the Lord Jesus, and in His sacrifice. And that they ought to have full assurance of faith. That is the promises that have been made that by His offering, Christ takes away their sin and makes them right with God. And so we need to hold fast the profession of faith that was made and not waver. Why is that? Because because we're faithful or because we have a strong faith or because we really believe? No, because He that promised is faithful. It's the faithfulness of God that we rest upon, not our own faith in and of itself. People can believe all sorts of things. The crazier, the better. But their faith is worthless because it's not founded upon the truth. It's not founded upon power. It's not founded upon the Word of the living God. And here you see the writer of Hebrews says that the strength of your faith is not your faith itself, but rather it's the faithfulness of the One who made the promises. And so if if you find yourself wavering in your faith, usually it's because you're questioning whether your faith is real or authentic or strong enough and so forth. And all you've done is shift your eyes off the faithfulness of the one who made the promise. The God who cannot fail. The God who comforts us with all blessings. So we're to still be trusting in the promises and sacrifice of Jesus. I noticed that the words of that particular song that we love to sing by Horatius Bonner raised thoughts in our hearts about this particular topic. The sacrifice is o'er. The veil is rent in twain. The mercy seat is red with blood of victim slain. Why stand we then without in fear? The blood of Christ invites us near. The gate is open wide. The new and living way is clear and free and bright with love and peace and day. Into the holiest we come, our present and our endless home. Enthroned in majesty, the high priest sits within. His precious blood once shed has made and keeps us clean. With boldness let us now draw near. That blood has banished every fear. Well, of course, that's Horatius Bonner's take on this particular text of Scripture that we have been reading this morning. The problem that we have to face, though, is what about the false priests? What about the false sacrifices? Because they continue. No matter how beautiful and logical and perfect the argument is in the book of Hebrews, the false priests and the false sacrifices will continue to be embraced and made by lost people. And this is a worldwide phenomenon. If the sacrifice is just your good works, then that's what it is. It's not the sacrifice of Christ, and it can't take away your sin. And if the sacrifice is still animals, then that's what your sacrifice is, but it can't take away your sin or save you in any way. And if your false priest is some dude who usurps the priesthood of Christ and claims he can offer a sacrifice that saves and cleanses, then that's your false priest. You see, there's a whole cottage industry, really not a cottage industry. It's the main 
it's the top one. It's not among the Fortune 5000. It's upon the Fortune 1 list. And that is all the Antichrist, anti-Lord Jesus sacrifices and priests that men will cling to and that men will offer in the place of Christ. They'd rather trust in anything but Jesus instead of none but Jesus. Their motto is anybody but Jesus. The problem of false priests, blasphemous priests, and offerings that Christ has done away with is a continual problem. And we won't be able to finish it this week, but hopefully next week we'll be able to finish this particular study. There are those who will defy Christ who has told us that it is no more offering for sin. That there is no more offering for sin. None but Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary's tree counts for anything. All the rest is complete loss. But it's worse than loss. It's blasphemy. It's an insult to the dignity of Christ's sacrifice and to the honor of His being made our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Plenty of people in this world defy the living God in these matters. Most of the people in this world defy the living God in these matters. The Jews did after Christ arose, and so God cut off their animal sacrifices, didn't He? Completely at 70 AD, He used the murderous, wicked, tyrannical acts of the Roman Empire to come in and totally decimate their animal sacrificial system and their beloved temple. And since then, there haven't been any animal sacrifices to take away sin by the Jewish people. But that doesn't mean that there isn't an insistence, a desire, a constant scheming to try to set them back up again. So in that sense, some folks keep trying to reinstitute temple sacrifices that have been not only rejected and repudiated by the Scriptures, by the Lord Jesus, but also politically have been obliterated by war and death and destruction. Just last week, I came across an article, and I'll read it to you, from the Jerusalem Post, October 1st. Israeli man attempts to sacrifice sheep on Temple Mount. A religious organization vowed that sacrifices would resume soon and the third temple would be built on the Temple Mount. An Israeli citizen was arrested near Jerusalem's old city on Sunday morning after attempting to bring a sheep to the Temple Mount as a sacrifice. The article has pictures of this sheep, this animal that he's leading through the streets of old Jerusalem. The suspect is a religious activist of the Khazrim Lahar movement, which advocates against the, quote, abandonment of the Temple Mount into foreign hands, unquote. The man was detained by law enforcement officials after being located en route to the mount. Following the suspect's arrest, the Chazrim Lahar movement warned that, quote, there is no more room for Muslim rule on the Temple Mount, unquote. The organization vowed that sacrifice would resume soon and the third temple would be built on the Temple Mount. Quote, it is time to build a third Jewish temple and renew sacrifices, the religious organization said. Dear government and Arabs, you are messing with the wrong generation, it further warned. Now one thing, if you can't glean this yourself, is that 
This is not so much a religious statement as it is a political statement. Like Karl Marx is said to have said, all of the issues in our life are political struggles. Political struggles. And it's pretty clear these people are making a political statement by their attempt to sacrifice on the Temple Mount. And that in itself, of course, is blasphemous. That wasn't the purpose of the animal sacrifices to make some political point. But there's this whole movement amongst the Jewish people who deny Christ's final and perfect offering for sin and seek to go back to animal sacrifices. And the Scriptures say they're trampling upon the blood of Jesus when they do that. Now, there's a tendency amongst some believers to applaud this sort of nonsense of bringing back animal sacrifices, for whatever reason, mostly for the political reason that they think this would be a sign of the times and so forth and so on. But true believers ought to be appalled at this blasphemy and defiance and rejection of the Lord Jesus and His sacrifice. The Bible is clear. There is no more sacrifice for sin. And if people will keep insisting, oh yes, there is, and oh yes, there must be, they're in open defiance against God's Word. And they're treating the offering of the Lord Jesus as worthless. Indeed, these people don't consider it to be an offering at all, do they? Not an offering at all. It ought to cause us to mourn when we hear Jewish people plotting to start sacrificing animals anywhere in the world, but especially in Jerusalem, it ought to cause us to mourn because it is a, an overt and frank rejection of the Lord Jesus. You think about the irony of it. The last time they made animal sacrifices was in 70 AD when the Romans came in and tore down the whole city and tore down the temple and immolated who knows how many people of course, the Lord Jesus had foretold that, told all of His people to get out of town, didn't He? When you see these signs and hear this, get out of town. Save yourselves. But this term, think about it. According to the eschatology that most people adhere to that are premillennial, if they reinstitute the sacrifices again, the terrors of the Antichrist will fall upon them and He will destroy their sacrifice and their temple and their offerings. And it will be far worse a destruction and a judgment from the hand of God than what happened in 70 AD. Far worse. Far more violent. Far more bloody. Far more apocalyptic. So we have to be careful about rejoicing when people talk about restarting sacrifices that Jesus put a stop to. There can only be wrath and judgment to follow such a scheme as that. But you know, they started out screaming for Christ's death the first time, didn't they? Not as a sacrifice, but in punishment for His crime of stating the truth that He is Messiah, the Son of God. We read this morning in John 19, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged Him, and the soldiers plotted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. 
Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. And you know, we read that and it just passes over us that, okay, so you've already flogged him and driven spikes into his brow and mocked him and ridiculed him, and yet you found no fault in him. What's that? Punishment first and justice last, I guess. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man! When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. So remember in his trial, they asked him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And he said, I am. And henceforth he shall see me seated on the right hand of the power and glory on high and coming in the clouds. So he told the truth under, under propulsion of an oath, which was an Old Testament law that he had to comply with. And for telling the truth, they decided he was worthy of death. So the only one who could save them from sin and death and hell, the only perfect sacrifice, they despised Him so. They despised Him so. Here is the shame of it. Then in John 19 at verse 14, and it was the preparation of the Passover and again the sixth hour. And He saith unto the Jews, Behold your King! But they cried out, Away with Him! Away with Him! Crucify Him! Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your King? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him, on either side one and Jesus in the midst. Now the cruelty of what they did to Christ is unspeakable. I would submit that it's a crime before God to scream out for anybody to be crucified. There's plenty of other ways you can put someone to death without dragging it out for three or four days in humiliation, shame, and such horror and pain as to be beyond the pale. But yet they were satisfied to demand that the Romans crucify him. They were, of course, furious that the Romans crucified all sorts of other people that they didn't want crucified. But since they hated him more than they hated the Romans, they were glad to demand that Pilate crucify him, even after he had found no fault in him at all. And then they cried out, We have no king but Caesar. No king but Caesar. These people who hated the Romans and hated Caesar and plotted large or small, though it might be, how they would get out from under Caesar and so forth. But now, in the face of the choice between Jesus and Caesar, they picked Caesar every time, didn't they? They rejected the promised king of peace, king of righteousness, the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, the amazing thing about this is what gives us such comfort and joy was to them something that they despised and rejected and would rather pick a tyrant of terror, not of peace, a tyrant of wickedness and cruelty 
and occupation, they'd rather pick that than the Lord Jesus, who in Psalm 110 had been promised to be the King of Peace, the King of Righteousness. These are the names of Melchizedek and a priest forever after his order. And so they chose Caesar instead, their tyrannical brutalizer, who soon would destroy their preferred sacrifices, wouldn't he? Maybe not the same Caesar, but in the line of Caesar's power. Soon destroy their animal offerings, the ones that could never save anybody at all. And then going on in John 19 at verse 30, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, He said, it is finished. And He bowed His head and He gave up the ghost. But we've spoken on that at great length. The sacrifice was done. The veil was rent in twain. The mercy seat is red with blood of victims slain. And so here we have this truth that Christ finished the offering for sin. And from that point on, no other offering is available. Any other offering is a contempt and an insult in the face of God and tramples the sacrifice of Jesus underfoot. And there's no other priest either. All the other priests have been rendered redundant and discharged from office when Christ said it is finished. And all other sacrifices and priests are in defiance of Christ, usurpers of Christ's position, pretenders as another Christ. And you'll recognize that language. The Roman Catholic false religion talks about their so-called priests as alter Christus, another Christ. That He takes the place of Christ. That He has power likened to Christ and so forth and so on. Note well the punctilious nature of the demands of the people once the Lord Jesus had died. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and broke the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they broke not his legs. Now, think about the cynicism of all this. So they could all die quicker deaths and get them off the cross before the sun went down. That was the idea. You remember that crucifixion was a multi-day agony in which a person was strung up by his arms and his feet were in such a position that he could rest his arms by straightening his knees. And of course, that meant that his feet were in torment by the nails through them. But that was the only way he could catch a breath. And otherwise, his lungs were slowly filled with water and he died of congestive heart failure mostly. But so they could die quicker. You see, if they broke their legs, they couldn't give themselves any relief and they would basically drown in their own fluids all the more quicker. And so then they could be cut down from the cross and therefore not dishonor their precious Passover celebration. You know, the one where they were supposed to be remembering how God rescued the firstborn out of Egypt with the blood of the Lamb slain and marking the posts of their doors. It is interesting that some heretics will claim that 
the Jewish Passover celebration, which is a remembrance, a memorial of that time when God rescued Israel by the lamb sacrifice, they think that it renews God's rescue of the people when plainly it doesn't. Jewish people have been celebrating Passover for centuries now, haven't they? Through good times and bad, but it doesn't appear that the blood of the Lamb is effective for them anymore, you see. It was a one-time thing that God did for them in Egypt. And no amount of repeating that ritual can save anybody. Can save anybody. But it was more important that they remember that ritual according to their law than it was that they honor Messiah whom they had crucified. And so they wanted Him cut down. Even in their hatred, however, don't you notice, they fulfilled God's purpose, didn't they? Because the Lord Jesus had to be put in the ground and He had to be there for so many days. And the Gospel story of redemption through the death and resurrection of Christ had to move forward. He had already surrendered His life into the hands of His Father. But it was their idea that they should hurry on the deaths so they could continue to keep their wretched little ceremony of Passover that they were so blinded to they couldn't see that it pointed to the Lord Jesus and to God's Lamb and His blood that was shed for us. Even in their hatred, they fulfill God's purpose. At verse 34, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, John's speaking of himself here, he wrote this, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. John's trying to nip in the bud the idea that Jesus was still alive when he was put in the tomb and that he, he was swooned. Soon after a little rest, he would be right as rain again. No, God made it clear to any objective viewer that Jesus is stone cold dead and there's no way at all that he could ever live again. His heart and lungs pierced. Blood and water flowed out. He was dead. He was dead dead. And the Apostle John is clear to record that for our faith and benefit. For these things were done that the Scriptures should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And you remember, this was a rule of the Passover. They were not to break any of the bones of the Passover lamb when they cooked and ate it after it had been slain and the blood displayed on the doorposts. And again, another Scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. In Zechariah 12, it had been foretold it had been foretold that they shall look on Him whom they pierced and they shall mourn for Him. And that's going to be at that time when they've gone back and instituted their little animal sacrifices again in defiance of Christ. And the Antichrist has come and completely destroyed them and immolated them and driven them to the horrors of the desperation of almost being defeated and, and completely exterminated. You see, God has been so merciful to open our eyes to see these truths, to tear us away from worthless sacrifices, to take Jesus as our sacrifice and high priest. And it is a miracle of working of the Holy Ghost in each of the hearts of the Lord's people. 
because we could just as easily have embraced false sacrifices, false priests, just like the Jewish people have, just like all the lost of this world have. How could it be that we should learn that we should learn the truth of this book of Hebrews about the sacrifice being done and no other sacrifice being permitted and all other sacrifices being an offense and a blasphemy against the sacrifice of Jesus and all other priests having no power at all but our high priest, the Lord Jesus. The comfort of God's oath to Christ in this matter has been deprived from all those people who still cling to false sacrifices and to false priests. But for our purposes, we love the words of that hymn by Horatius Bonner. No blood, no altar now. The sacrifice is o'er. No flame, no smoke ascends on high. The lamb is slain no more. But richer blood has flowed from nobler veins to purge the soul from guilt and cleanse the reddest stains. We thank Thee for the blood, the blood of Christ, Thy Son, the blood by which our peace is made, our victory is won, great victory o'er hell and sin and woe that needs no second fight and leaves no second foe. We thank Thee for the grace descending from above that overflows our widest guilt, the eternal Father's love, love of the Father's everlasting Son, love of the Holy Ghost, Jehovah, three in one. We thank Thee for the hope so glad and sure and clear. It holds the drooping spirit up till the long dawn appear. Fair hope with what a sunshine does it cheer. Our roughest path on earth, our dreariest desert here. Now, we come to the Lord's table. We come to celebrate what the Lord Jesus did for us on the cross. And we come knowing that this is not a sacrifice. It could be considered a sacrifice of praise, but it's not a sacrifice for sin. It doesn't propitiate sin. It doesn't save us from our sin. It's a remembrance, a celebration of the body and blood of Jesus and how all of our hope and faith and joy for all times is because of that actual body and that actual blood which the Lord Jesus laid down in our place and for our crimes to reconcile us unto a holy God so that we might go with boldness into His presence now because the blood in our priest are there, as the hymn writer put it. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's table until He comes again when we'll see Him with our own eyes and we'll see the wounds that He bears as marks of indelible grace. We pray that the Lord will bless us as we partake of this feast. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. The Scriptures tell us on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed that He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for our sins. O oh God, our Father, we rejoice that in Christ Jesus, Your Son, 
your well-beloved son was found the only suitable lamb to be slain for the sins of your people whom you love and whom you would redeem. That he came into this world and was proclaimed to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that he suffered and died on Calvary's tree in obedience to your will. And that he did so on account of the joy that was set before him. Thank you that he has entered into a portion of that joy and more joy as his people are called to him one by one throughout time. And we thank you that his blood purges our guiltiness, not like the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain, but His own precious blood that did take away our sin, by which He has perfected forever His people. Thank You that You see us as perfect for Jesus' sake. That when You look upon us, You see the righteousness of Christ, Your dear Son. That therefore we're accepted in the Beloved One. Thank You that Abraham foresaw that sacrifice where you would provide a lamb for a sacrifice. And if an animal lamb could substitute for little Isaac, temporarily, temporally, no doubt, the Lord Jesus as your perfect lamb could be a substitute for all your people who put their trust in you. We thank you for the cup that he left us. We thank you that he was in the mood of setting up the celebration even before He went to the cross and had completed it, knowing for sure what the end would be. The end would be the death He would die, the resurrection He would undergo, and the salvation of every single one of the people whom You had given to Him would one day throughout history be fulfilled. Thank You for the day that He saved each of those here who have called upon His name. And bless us as we partake of this fruit of the vine, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 100, Isaac Watts' great hymn, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace nor wash away its stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, took all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Number 100.